Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. This is episode 204, and we're recording this live on April 29th, 2021. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined uh, uh, across the internet from uh, me is Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. <laughs> How's it going, Nick? How's everything going for you this evening? Aside from the awkward intro, I'm good, man. How are you? I am stellar. I just realized it's actually my dog's birthday. So. Oh, happy birthday <laughs> to your dog. I don't know if you Absolutely. care about the name, but I will not say it on the show. Uh, anyway, uh, we have a quick couple programming notes here. Um we, if you're listening to this, you probably see in your feed, there's a couple extra episodes for you. We have a couple extra interviews out there for you. We are continuing our coverage of the HFES Healthcare Symposium. Um, we have the interview with Mertid Alfred and our Digital Health Student Design Competition winners. Those are both out now, um, and we've posted a recap on our blog uh, of everything that we've done. Uh, I think there's five separate episodes that we've covered, uh, Elise and I, during the HCS um 2021 symposium it was a great time come check out that if you haven't already uh, lots of good stuff in there especially if you're into healthcare human factors but we know why you're here uh actually one quick programming note next week uh i am gonna be only on the pre-show blake is gonna take it away with somebody else we're finding a replacement and then the week after that we're gonna be on a quick summer hiatus and then we'll be back uh the week after that i know i need specific dates um so maybe we talk about those next week i don't know this is on the fly that's not in the show notes but we're not i'm not gonna be here next week blake's gonna handle it um we'll be gone the week of the 13th and we'll be back on the week of the 20th of may thank you blake all right so with that let's get into human factors news That's right. This is the part of the show all about human factors news. Uh, this could be anything. Uh, as long as it relates to the field of human factors, it's fair game for us to sit here and talk about. Blake, what do we got up this week? Up this week, Nick, we've got cybersecurity and how it affects smart farms. So some have dubbed this era of smart agriculture with farms around the world scaling up their use of things like the Internet, Internet of Things, big data, cloud computing, and even AI to increase yields and sustainability of farms. Yet with so much digital technology, natural also also comes a heightened potential cybersecurity set of vulnerabilities. There's no scaling back at smart agriculture either now that we've turned it on. So by the end of the decade, we'll need to produce that extra food for as we start crossing the world's population of nearly 8.5 billion people. And unless smart agriculture can dramatically increase the global food system's efficiency, the prospect of doing something like reducing global hunger is going to be very, very difficult. So Agriculture 4.0, or Smart Ag, aims not just at growing more food, but also doing so at an increased efficiency with more powerful data analytics and more intelligent automation and decision-making behind the scenes. Although Smart Agriculture has been extensively studied, the security issues around Smart Agriculture have really not been. Research has mostly focused on involved applying conventional cybersecurity wisdom things we know today um, in large tech systems to agricultural tech and ag agricultural cybersecurity by contrast just doesn't get as much attention 
So, Nick, this is a kind of an interesting take on cybersecurity because we've talked about that a lot in the past and its implications to both people that work in the security field as well as those that work in tech focused on the human factors aspects. But now we're kind of applying it to a completely different world where, from my perspective at least, I don't think about the amount of technology involved in a farm, much less a smart farm. Yeah, so let's just recap what this article here says. So, basically, the problem statement is that there are technologies being implemented in smart farms and the same care and attention to detail when it comes to cybersecurity aspects of those technologies are not being uh, paid much attention to in terms of smart farms. And so the whole thesis of this article is that because we're not taking this care and attention into the devices that you have on smart farms, they are then hackable. Um, and I thought what would be kind of a good idea is if we back up, let's remind ourselves of some of the human factors principles as it pertains to cybersecurity um, and talk about sort of what the vulnerabilities are of these smart farms um, and how maybe they can be solved by implementing some of these um, some some of these human factors principles. And of course, it's going to I hate myself for this. It's going to depend on the. On, on the technology and it's not just a one size fit all like you and I were talking about this in the pre-show right you can't just take one set of cybersecurity principles and slap it onto another thing and have it be good it has to be tailored for it um and so I I guess I don't know where do you want to start Blake there's there, we have a ton of notes in here that we can pull from where do you want to start so that's the biggest one, right? I think that's a mistake that a lot of us make when we think about cybersecurity and it, it's it's a problem I think a lot of human factors professionals also kind of run into, whether it's from the design aspect or you're trying to design like a space or you're doing a, like a risk analysis, whatever it may be, a lot of people will try and retrofit, you know, pre-existing practices or a design that already exists to do a completely different task. And in some ways that's happening here. So you're just taking existing knowledge is applied largely to very high tech fields when we talk about cybersecurity. And try and say, like, oh, okay, we can use the same mitigation strategies and we only have to worry about the same types of issues um, with smart farms too, right? But the problem becomes is there's specific kind of contextual factors that make the, the problem set that I guess these smart farms really face different from, you know, a, a high-tech company. So not kind of looking in the looking at the, I guess, contextual things and the additional problems that come up kind of allow for this hacking problem to be even worse for something like a smart farm. And I think the the biggest part that kind of like ties it back to the article too is this is one of those problem sets where you can't go really backwards and just start turning technology off and go do the research like in a vacuum because now it's a it's a necessity to have smart farms in existence to kind of scale up and continue adding technology to them so we can feed more people, do more things like that. So that's a really big issue there. Um, one other kind of thing to consider is what do you do to kind of train people um, to deal with cybersecurity issues in farming? I mean, you're introducing a lot of different types of technology, a lot of different constraints that maybe the farm technicians didn't have to deal with before. So I think that's another big one, too, in terms of when we think about human factors. So taking your existing knowledge base and trying to grow it in terms of what you already know and how you understand a problem, and then what happens when you start introducing new technology and stuff like that. Yeah, so I do want to talk about the problem space um, because it's a little 
hard to conceptualize because even even you, Blake, thought when you thought smart farms, you thought of something else entirely. So I want to, I want to absolutely yeah talk about this problem space um, and just give a couple examples of how agriculture might be shaped by these technologies and how they can be hacked. Right. So let's start there. We're talking about smart agriculture, or smart ag, as they call it, um, and so. There's a bunch of different security issues that you might actually run into, right? There's all the Internet of Things issues that you might run into with any other Internet of Things thing, um, especially the technologies that come into that, right? So there are certain different ways in which these devices communicate with each other, um, one of them being like... Uh, you know, like Zigbee technology, which is kind of like this, it's almost like Bluetooth, but it it, it just can, it communicates through these wireless signals that bypass Wi-Fi. Um, and so it's actually device to device communicating with each other. And I, the reason I know this is a, a long story, but the um, that's less of an issue than some of the human factors aspects. And we'll get to those in a minute. But um, there are certainly human factors issues with Internet of Things. If you have these smart listening devices that control things, we've talked about this on the show where people have been hacking them with lasers. With you know, If you keep them in the wrong space, somebody can shine a laser onto it and communicate with it that way. There's also, you know, how do you voice protect something if you have these voice controlled devices? Um, so there's ways in which the Internet of Things can be shifty. Uh, let's talk about some of the other stuff. Um, you know, there's there's uh, mo- one of the uh, people in this paper say that one of the most pressing security issues with smart agriculture is um, the physical environment. So things like a factory control system, um, you know, being intruded or um, UAV false positioning. Now, what? What does that mean? Hold on. So imagine somebody hacks into your control system. They can do weird things with your farm. Uh, They can waste your resources if you're a competitor. Um, They can, if if it's an unmanned aerial vehicle and they're able to hack into your system um, with a bad password that you've set, like farmer123, exclamation point. You know, like if that's your password, somebody can hack in and, and control your UAV to fertilize their crops and not yours and waste your resources on their stuff. Uh, And so they're, you know, and, and false position it. So that way you think it's fertilizing your crops, but in fact, it's over here on my farm. So there's, there's that aspect of it. Um, And, and the reason that would work is that the network out there is not as good as like it is in the city. Uh, You know, the positioning out in, in the uh, rural areas is not that great. Um, so basically, you know, there's, there's also the equipment itself. Um, so we've talked about the control systems, the UAVs, the internet of things, but there's also the equipment itself, right? So, um, you know, making sure that the physical security of these equipment is, is, um, taken care of as well. So I'm thinking like a tractor, uh, which has the appropriate security measures to keep somebody from getting into it. Somebody that's not authorized to get into the tractor or uh, other pieces of farm equipment. You know, I'm not a farmer. I don't know what the pieces of equipment are, but you can imagine that these are the types of questions that need to be answered. Um, And the fact that none of these things are being paid attention to um, 
is is sort of why these are hackable farms. Uh, and I'm doing that in air quotes for anyone who's listening. Um, you know, they, they also mention a couple other things here. I There's a solar insect insecticidal lamps. Um, so <laughs> you can imagine if you had control of the voltage somewhere, you could uh, turn those down so it wouldn't necessarily kill the, the bugs, right? Um, that are potentially harming your crops. So there's a lot of unique... Absolutely unique challenges here that you have to consider and then how does the human interact with all those things right so i th- I, th- I think that's a pretty good survey of the problem space um anything else to add there blake before we like continue on to some of these applications of or, or problems within uh cybersecurity with human factors I just think you brought up some interesting points that might be worth kind of exploring a little bit so one big kind of misconception I had is the amount of technology that's being used on a smart farm. I mean, we're talking about like UAVs doing specific tasking, like I would imagine for agriculture or even, you know, spreading fertilizer, whatever it might be. But in terms of stuff, actually, we talked a little bit about last week. If you're thinking about supervisory control systems in this, this is another one of those cases where we have to have a lot of automation in place because without it, you're dealing with a lot of loss of signal and all sorts of stuff in terms of transmitting because of network issues, you know, the quality of the instruments, whatever it may be. But that actually leaves a kind of like entire set of like human factors issues, right? And that you have to be able to communicate to both to and from the operator in some case who's like putting together at least initial automation uh, for what the UAV needs to do. And then on top of that, you've got to actually be able to communicate back problems the UAV may be having through some piece of software, an application, whatever it may be. But actually this lag time between communication that I I as like a, a normal person, and I would imagine I don't know anybody else, may not think about the fact that 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 like lag in communication can actually be a really vulnerable time for something like a UAV or an automated system in which you have the capability of a hacker being able to take it over and do something either malicious or hold it ransom or whatever it may be. Um, and then we even have like different sensors that are attached to, you know, parts of different, different parts of the farm. Like I, I know the article mentions about sensors that are for cows so that you know like when they need to be fed when anything else is going on with them based on like heat heat and temperature and that kind of stuff so being able to hack those kind of sensors that could affect not just livelihood but it also could affect the health of another animal um, so this just has like a lot of interesting and far-reaching implications here um, and it's it's funny how it's it's related to cybersecurity but it has so much more to do with just a lot of equipment being added to a, a context where it was much more manual labor. But to scale, we need a lot more automation in place. Yeah. So there's, I I always struggle with human factors in cybersecurity because there there's obviously the security aspects. There's uh, privacy and security uh, as it pertains to your data and who has access to that data and what they're doing with that data. And that's a big question that touches on human factors, a lot of that is driven by the frameworks by which you're using. And so this is this is a complex problem. So we'll try to break it down in terms of what is technology and what is human factors here. But there's that privacy and security aspect. Um, there's the authentication aspect, the two-factor authentication. That's a whole process for people to do. 
Um, if you're unaware what two-factor authentication is, it's where you log in with one device and then you verify that with another device that is uh, paired with a, a login key from that first device. So in practice, this might be logging into a website and it says, hey, we've just texted you a code. Could you just give us that code to make sure that you're you and you're not somebody else from a remote location that doesn't have access to your phone? Um, and two-factor authentication is been shown to be really effective in reducing the amount of unauthorized logins, right? So that's that's the authentication uh, piece. That's the human factors piece. You might be able to apply that to something like the access control protocols um, or like the, the, you know, controls to the UAV. You might be able to do something like that where you need that physical second device, a token authenticator, which is like kind of older school. I, it's like 2000s tech where you have this you know this little device that you press it and it comes up with a little code that you put in and it's linked um, and it's just a digital thing it's not even connected to the internet so that that might be another way to do it um, you have uh, the other aspects of this where you have kind of these um, intrusion detection systems that's a potential countermeasure to um, some of these uh, threats in cybersecurity. Now, that I feel like the um, intrusion detection systems, that's kind of with two-factor authentication, uh, but I feel like that is more technology. If, if you know, a, a device senses that somebody's outside your system. And again, like Blake and I are not experts in cybersecurity, so we're just kind of breaking this down. If anyone is an expert in cybersecurity, please reach out to the show because we'd love to have a conversation about that. Um, there's cryptography and key management. That's kind of the same thing with two-factor authentication. A lot of it comes down to verifying that the person accessing the system is, in fact, the person that needs to be accessing the system and not a threat elsewhere accessing that system. Um, Which can be really hard to do because, I mean, you've got to think about the context that we're working in now. So we're, we're not so much limited to, you know, you and I, carry our phone all the time. Like I always have my phone when I'm at work because I have to two-factor authenticate various things that I access during the day. So it's not as big of a deal. But one big problem in kind of like the human factor space that I think a lot of people face is when we're introducing a lot more potential workload that can undermine how somebody's able to perform. And it's the same thing when we're talking about security too. So if we're implementing more technology that's supposed to be helpful, but there's a large gap in the understanding and kind of like mitigation strategies for something like cybersecurity, you have to kind of moderate that because you want to make sure that whatever solution you're providing is kind of like hitting both of the horns of the bull, right? So you want to be able to make sure that an operator, in this case a farmer, has a manageable farm that does it, and the technology added is not adding, you know, in an adverse way to their workload. Because you got to think about these, these are people that are getting up, spending, you know, 12-hour days managing a farm on top of new technology. So adding something like two-factor authentication to so many um, so many of these different smart farm systems, like you kind of have to think about like, okay, how do I do this in a way that makes it so it is secure and we can notify them of actual you know cyber threats without making it too complex? So something like what you've suggested, Nick, about basically giving them almost a authenticator fob like that feels like 2000s tech that may work really well in this environment where we're dealing with degraded networks 
or you know different lags in terms of communication times between software systems so it's a it's a cool space to work in for sure to think about some of the ways you can mitigate the smart farm problems for cybersecurity anyway yeah so i i think we've done a good job of explaining what the problem space is we've explained kind of how the human factors uh fits into it i want to talk briefly about some like classic human factors cybersecurity problems and we can apply it to this context right so with respect to this th- this smart farms aspect let's let's look at some classic um human factors applications here so first up usability accessibility uh this is something that you know when you think about usability patterns uh there's a lot of things that are just baked into kind of the way that we use devices right two-factor authentication like we, we keep bringing that up but it's it's almost baked into nearly everything that you have now and so being able to um sort of use the uh use those baked in options as a way to keep people from choosing less secure options um because it's designed to make them choose the more secure option uh from sort of one context to another you can kind of think of that in terms of the usability and accessibility with respect to cybersecurity. So basically designing to make something by default more secure by implementing some of these design changes, right? So that's that's kind of one problem space. Um, I also think like a big thing with accessibility and usability when we're talking about like a cybersecurity issue, like definitely, yes, provide the capability to deal with that and make sure like you're giving people the correct technology to ensure this is the person that should be using it. But also I think it leads to a need to really focus on some of the, um, what, like what I always think of as like error trapping from Don Norman. So building in those security routines that can help the operator kind of not have to deal with all of the kind of potential issues that may run up or if somebody is trying to do an attack on something like a UAV system. So building in those, I guess, mitigation routines into software to help improve overall usability for something like this. Yeah, so I I do want to talk about the usability and accessibility still with one more kind of point. And I guess the issue in cybersecurity is that the option for a more secure connection, a more secure system, typically interrupts a a user's flow. And so the user-friendly option might not necessarily be the quickest. It might not necessarily be the most efficient, but it's the most secure. So if you think about a user's workflow, going from you know setting up my UAV control system, um, and it's like, hey, would you like to enable two-factor authentication? No, I don't need to. That, that, no. that will make me go to my phone, and my phone's in the other building. I left it there. Oops. I'm not going to do that. And then, you know, so it's like, do you design it to where they have to? It still interrupts the flow, but it's going to be more secure. And it's that whole battle between what do you, like, how do you make it easy enough for somebody without disrupting their flow? Um, so, you know, keeping that in mind, if you are designing a, a cybersecurity system or just any system, design it with that interruption of flow in mind, right? Like uh, save their options beforehand, allow them to leave. If anything goes wrong, they can pick back up from where they left off. Um, Those types of considerations, right? Uh, I think another thing there is to think about, are there other alternative solutions that are 
different than what you would typically do in that situation. Like, for instance, could we use voice instead of requiring to have them to have their phone? Um, something like that in this this kind of specific case if we're doing different types of authentication. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it does lend itself to finding unique solutions when, like, you don't want to interrupt workflow all the time. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the next kind of um, piece of the human factors aspect, and this is this is more of like a... I don't know. We'll talk about it. So this is... <laughs> imagine there are problems on a farm, right? There are problems that need solutions. So... A product design team comes in, they design a solution, it's technology, it's a UAV instead of, you know, your biplane. Um, and they've designed it, it's a cool piece of technology, but was human factors considered? Was usability considered during the design process of this? Well, in most cases, yes, but was it considered with the context of a farm in mind? Um, you know, if you're using Internet of Things, there was probably security considered at some point. Was it considered for a farm? Probably not. So you need to consider that the solutions that you have to some of the problems that you're having on the farm may not be designed for your intended use, like a smart sprinkler system hooked up to a uh, Internet of Things might not have that same level of cybersecurity that something else, you know, like just turning on, uh, manually turning on your sprinkler system would right you, you have to physically be in that space you have to show your intent by flipping the valve to open up the sprinklers i don't know how it's done you turn the knob i don't know i'm not a farmer <laughs> um so he set the timer yeah. turn it on it's all good the whole solutions in search of a problem thing um any anything on that blake before we move on to the next point i think that's a great one to consider here because we're talking about like one of those times where we we turn technology on and you can't turn it off. So if we because we didn't or like I'm, I'm acting like I'm a farmer that put all this smart technology on my farm, but because like it hasn't been researched and that's the entire point of this article and the subsequent research papers that have been written to kind of bolster the article, it's the importance importance of really understanding cybersecurity per context. And so be, just because like a technology advancement is great which this definitely is, but because of the nature of kind of the, the world and the internet and people's access to information, uh, it does leave you vulnerable in some places. So kind of stepping back and understanding that you have existing kind of solutions for different technology context. How do we apply what we learned previously or how do we research what we're doing now effectively to create you know more modern solutions for smart farming? Yeah, and I think that kind of goes with this next point that we have here, that one size does not fit all. Um, you know, like I was mentioning with the Internet of Things devices, it, it is kind of one of those ubiquitous, uh, or trying to be ubiquitous, right? It's in almost every home, many homes. I want to say almost every, but but using it on a yeah. farm is a different context from using it in the home to control your lights or something. You know, the, the cost of having somebody access my lights is I can't see. Oh, oh, oh no. Um, but having it access something else like your sprinkler system that costs money to run water or your, um, you know, your security system in your farm, which allows people access entry to your buildings. That's a whole nother problem. Um, and so it's not designed for every context. It's designed to be fairly generalized and it needs to be designed for those specific contexts with the human in mind or, or sort of the security aspect in mind. Um, 
I think that uh, let's see. I'm I'm looking through here. There's there's a couple different strategies that you can employ to kind of get around some of these cybersecurity issues um, that often centers around security culture. We can go over those. Um, you know, I think they're they're fairly high level, uh, but I think we've we've kind of done a good job of explaining the cybersecurity aspects of human factors. Anything else to add to that before we get into some of these solutions here, Blake? Uh, one thing that I thought was kind of interesting that's not mentioned specifically in some of the things that we pulled, but I know it's a big human factors concern, is when you introduce, like, you when if you think about a smart farm and even just some of the few things that we've talked about, so sensors being attached to livestock and throughout your farm or or UAVs, any of that stuff. I just wonder what the impact to the operator is in terms of how has this changed life on a farm? And what does it really mean in terms of being a farmer now versus when you, like 10 years ago without as much technology? So I think that's a another kind of consideration as well. You may have people that be become more interested in farming because of some of the tech aspects that are being introduced to it. Um, and so that becomes another kind of interesting way that you can understand the impact of integration of technology like this. So somebody that is really interested in high tech and its impact on a farm or its impact on the globe in terms of feeding different populations and stuff like that. Um, it's just a cool problem space for sure. And there's a lot of human factors implications, both on the design side, but also in the security aspects of it as well. Yeah, so I guess to to kind of cap this off here, uh, let's just kind of go over some of these lessons learned in human factors cybersecurity uh, as potential solutions. Right? This isn't going to be um, this is going to this is not going to fix every problem that smart farms have, but it's it's a good start that we can start looking at. So I'm just going to rattle these off high level, uh, Blake. If there's anything that you think of, we can dig into them. But I'm just going to read them off first. So we have, you know, consult your staff on security procedures. Um, set clear boundaries for any sharing of information. Be cognizant of what's going on in your phys physical environment. Ensure that workloads of the user don't undermine the security. And we kind of talked about that a little bit earlier. Any employees on the farm need to be aware of the scale of the threat that is going to be a result of not following security procedures. So let them know that that UAV could go fertilize somebody else's crops uh, and that you won't get paid as much because our yield isn't as high. Um, so and then we have uh, match security to personality types. Um, this one's a, an interesting one. I want to dig into this one a little bit. And then ensure human factors are part of incident management analysis. So from the bottom level, make sure it's all involved. So Blake, any of those stick out to you? You want to talk about any of those? I love the setting clear information sharing boundaries because that's such a important thing that we have to deal with just in, I think, our day-to-day um, even with applications that most people use like Facebook or anything like that, there's a lot of just cybersecurity things you want to know. You want to understand how information and data is being used. And this particular kind of solution is, is tough because there's two heads to the snake that I see. Because if you look in the article, like towards the end, they talk about AI potentially being a really great application space for smart farming because maybe you can mitigate things like different styles of hacking attacks or virus nodes or whatever it might be. Um, but the problem is there's not enough data that's focused on 
these types of technology being used in the context of farming. So coming up with a, a large enough data set that you can, you know, apply deep learning principles to doesn't just doesn't exist yet. So being willing on from the farmer side and the tech side to be able to share that information across farms is a big deal. But at the same time, you probably want to be kind of protective of what you are sharing and what like ends up stored in the cloud um, to always be used and always be referenced because it could be I don't I don't know what what farming is like I really have no idea how to be a farmer but I could imagine maybe there's tricks of the trade that you don't necessarily want sitting on video footage or maybe you figured out like hey if I use this UAV in a specific pattern it really enhances the yield of my crops for this thing that I grow all the time so it's stuff that's like almost proprietary farming things that you've come up with based off of this technology um, is things you might want to keep private so there's just a careful balance like everything I think um, of how information is shared and used and who's benefiting from it in what ways yeah the the last point that I want to jump on here is the one that I pointed out so matching security to personality types and I know that bullet kind of sounds confusing and it can be um, if you're not familiar with some cybersecurity principles right uh, working with the DoD they have us take a cybersecurity training um, and it focuses a lot on things like insider threat so when we're talking about personality types we're talking about um, you know individuals that might be more vulnerable to um, to those types of attacks right if you have somebody an employee of the farm that might give something away unknowingly that it's proprietary information like you just said Blake or something else like unknowingly gave the password away that it's farmer one two three uh, exclamation point you know like those types of um, cybersecurity insider threats are important to understand and so from like a manager perspective make sure that the right people have access to the right information um, you know in in the DOD, this is security clearances. Make sure that people are well vetted before they get their security clearance to make sure that they are capable of handling that information. If information is mishandled, come down with a hammer appropriately and and uh, punish them in some way to you know take away their security clearance, make it so that they can't work on that type of material again in the future. Um, that's what we're talking about with personality types here. You know, just making sure that organizations using um, kind of understand these these farms understand who they're hiring and make that a part of their recruitment right so you're not just hiring somebody you want to vet them and make sure that they're not from the farm down the way doing espionage on your farm for your proprietary methods to increase the competitor's yield it's man this this whole problem space of smart farms is so fascinating and i nerded out about this in office hours when i saw this because there's just I didn't even, like you, Blake. I didn't even think about farms being high tech. I think of farms as low tech and it's not at all. And it's just insane to see where we're at in this problem space of cybersecurity and why it's so important. Such a cool use of automation and potentially like deep learning, depending on how like like we talked about information is being shared. So, yeah, this was a great one. And I'm really stoked that the Patreons pulled this one for this week. Yeah, thank you to our patrons for selecting the topic, and thank you to our friends over at the IEEE Spectrum for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post these uh, articles as a blog post every week for convenience, so you can go check it out on our website, uh, and we do post those in our communities as well. 
Uh, really quick, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to break down. Uh, we'll see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, and we are back. Uh, so yes, Patreon is a thing that we do. Um, and we have, I guess, an exciting... Uh, no, it is an exciting announcement. <laughs> Why am I guessing? Do you think it's it is? It's a very, very exciting announcement. Uh, really quick, I just want to thank you to our patrons, especially our honorary Human Factors cast patron, uh, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running, and thank you so much for your continued support. Speaking of keeping the show running, um, we do have an exciting thing. Um, now, look, we've tried to keep the show here uh, ad-free, and we will. Uh, we are going to keep the show ad-free. Now, with that, there's a caveat. Uh, so we are now introducing two additional levels of patreon support that you yes. can help the show out uh one is called i just really like the show and this is just a way for you to give us more money there's no additional benefits uh it's just there if you if you want to give us some extra money um then there's this other one which has a tremendous benefit if you can think of how to use it correctly so we do have a new tier called show sponsor um this is uh Basically, a way for you to control that commercial that you just heard. Um, basically, you get 150 words for a script that we read here on the show every week. Uh, that you are, uh, you know, for every week and month that you are subscribed to the show, we will read it on the show for you. Uh, there's there can only be one of these people, so we will never have more than one show sponsor at a time. Um, you know, the value is there. I think for us to keep the show running, expand more platforms, do more interesting things. And, uh, you know, it allows you to use our audience for whatever you'd like. Now, we have a more younger audience, uh, mid to late, or sorry, early to mid-career professionals with some late-career professionals in there as well. But if you want a very targeted message, like let's say you're a human factors-only company, that wants to hire a human factors individual, this might be a great place for you to write a script and have us say it every week that reaches a specific target of uh, human factors demographic people. Again, we like keeping the show ad free. So we made this, um, you know, a competitive price tag with other things like ZipRecruiter. You, you know, you might find a similar price point there. Uh, but again, this will help out the show. So I feel like this is a good compromise to us taking ads. It's it could be an ad, but really it's kind of up in the air as to what this person writes. It's just a way for somebody to support the show and influence what we put on it. That's what we're going with. Um, 
we'll see if any, we have any takers, but it is a way for us to help the show grow. And ultimately, we needed to make that decision, and, and that's where we're at. Again, I don't want to consider this an advertisement. This is a patron. This is somebody who is helping contribute to the show, um, and it's just a way for them to get their message out. Uh, so with that, uh, I think we'll go ahead and move on to this next part of the show. It came from... It came from... Right, it came from. This week, it's going to be all Reddit. Uh, this is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. Any topic is fair game, as long as it relates to the field of human factors, and Blake and I have an opinion on it. <laughs> so what do we have? <laughs> so up first this week, um, let's go ahead and take this first one. It's mentioning difficult clients during interviews. This one was written by Helvetica Forever on the user experience subreddit they go on to write they say never badmouth an employer in an interview but is it okay to acknowledge that you were dealing with a challenging external client on a project some projects are challenging simply because the client didn't know what they wanted and regularly changed expectations and requirements with no notice if those conditions are phrased politely to contextualize a product project would it be considered a red flag from an employer's perspective I wouldn't ever say, quote, well, the client was dumb and wanted a bunch of stupid, terrible stuff, end quote. But clearly discussing significant constraints is a big part of my story. Blake, would you ever badmouth a client in an interview? Absolutely not. Because I mean, that, that just that's bad manners. And so it's, it's one of those things where you definitely don't want to do that. However, I will say that I, I have been asked and I do ask. Tell me about a difficult situation in which you had to navigate a, a tough client or a hard project, either that or like dealing with, you know, your internal team having a hard time or dealing with a tough stakeholder. So it's something that I think people should be well versed in talking about. But like this is kind of hinting, you want to frame it right. You don't want to badmouth the client or kind of like talk a bunch of trash. You want to accentuate the fact that you were met with specific constraints you figured out and pivoted in a way that matched the client's needs, matched hopefully your end user needs as well, and also helped your team adapt to a changing problem. Because um, it, it can be very difficult to work with, especially if you're kind of like in an agency or you're a freelancer. It can be difficult working with an external client. Things change. They, they want something different. Maybe your branding isn't right, whatever it may be. Uh, but how you talk about it is mainly the important part. Um, but Nick, what do you think? I mean, would you ever badmouth a client to a new employer or a prospective employer? Yes, but not specific names. I would mention, or projects. I would mention that, yes, I've worked with difficult clients in the past. Um, they have demanded things and, and explaining that relationship that you had with them to a potential employer is important, I feel. Because for a variety of reasons, there can be difficult clients on any project. Now, what you're getting from explaining that you've had a difficult client in the past is I'm communicating to you, my prospective employer, that I know how to communicate to somebody in a professional manner and manage that. And I think that's incredibly valuable because uh, if, if you don't know how to manage it, then you're not going to have great customer-client relations you're going to have uh, you know, a bad reputation in your community. And so it's a matter of, a, we can talk about approaching it as a separate issue someday, but for now, it's just, do you bring this up during interviews? Absolutely. 
like I said, don't mention names, don't mention projects, but say, here's one example. I was working on a project and XYZ happened, and that was a very difficult challenge for me to overcome and kind of frame it that way, right? So you're you're framing it as a challenge that you've overcame, and you're also explaining to a prospective employer what your process is for you know, overcoming some of those challenges. So I'm a yes. I'm a yes on that. There you go. Very good. Soft skill challenge number one. There you are. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Next up, Human Factors Masters Questions. This is from Kai Bands on the Human Factors subreddit. They write, Hi, everyone. I was recently accepted into a Human Factors Masters program that will begin this fall. Due to my undergrad being in kinesiology and the majority of my experience being in healthcare, naturally, I am drawn to this sector of human factors. So my questions are, there's a list of them, so we're going to go over them one by one, but we'll, we'll tackle them all. One, how does choosing a specific sector work? Two, are the curriculums of human factors programs typically broad enough to give the tools that you need for at least most of the major industries? Three, how easy is it to transition from industry sectors? Four, does anyone know about human factors in surgical robotics? Five, for example, company, well, sorry, for example, five, are there any couples in this, uh, in this subreddit that are both human factors engineers? So Blake, there's a lot of questions there. Um, let's tackle them one by one, uh, and we'll kind of bounce back and forth. So that way we get question, answer, answer, question, answer, answer. Let's do that way. So Blake, how does choosing a specific sector work? Uh, that's a great question. So I'm going to give you my take on it, and it's kind of what are you interested in? Where do you see that you would love to apply human factors work or human factors methods to a design problem or just places that you are really interested in? Like if you are drawn to healthcare or things that have to do with kinesiology and you want to you know, pursue human factors in that field, awesome. There's nothing wrong with that at all. For me, I feel like it did me a lot of justice kind of dabbling in a bunch of different things from aviation to, you know, uh, enterprise software systems to other stuff. So I feel like it's just find somewhere you'd like to start and kind of keep growing in that domain as long as you feel like it's something you're that's for you. Yeah, for me, sector selection or industry selection starts when you start looking at grad schools um for a lot of people you should go towards um a an advisor who is in your sector of interest who is aligned with you in terms of what they're working on what you want to work on and i think that will help form a great relationship for getting into that sector because they have connections most of the time uh, they are up to date with a lot of the research that is going on in that sector. And so start back, you know, where you, where you can, uh, or when you can start as a student looking for grad schools, that's where you want to start. Now, if you are, uh, already an established human factors professional and you are looking for another sector, it all comes back to interest, right? Where, what interests you? And then who do you know in that sector? Uh, can you get a foot in the door somewhere? And then it's, how do you frame, and I, this is kind of answering another question down the line, but how do you frame your current work uh, or work experience in a way to apply it to that new sector? Um, so we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But um, 
Are Blake, the next question here, are the curriculums of human factors programs typically broad enough to give the tools you need for at least the most part or for at least the most of the major industries in your experience? In my experience, yes. I mean, my specific school, the the methods class gave me so much both like in classroom knowledge and applied experience that I felt like and I know at this point that I had enough of a baseline understanding of how to apply human factors in a different type of setting, no matter if it was aviation or the DOD or working in a small startup. Um, the biggest thing, that, the caveat there is it's a baseline and you will always continue to have to learn like the nuances in different industries. And you'll kind of encounter that probably in your job interviews or anything like that. Like for instance, healthcare, You'll want to look up specific human factors guidelines related to healthcare, which may not be anything but breezed over in a like a, a school program. But at least you should have a nice baseline to start with so you can kind of expand out and learn what you need to. Yeah, I agree. I think most programs offer that great baseline. Um, and it's going to be, like Blake said, you will often find that you need to learn new skills once you get into the workforce. There are ways that... Certain employers do things that you have to adjust to, course correct, uh, learn new methods. Every different program is different. And so uh, there's kind of commonality between them all, but they'll teach you different things. And you'll learn things from people along the way. And that's part of your job is to never stop improving. You always want to be consistently learning how to best tackle a situation. And the more things that you have in your toolbox that you can approach that situation from, the better. So yes, but you'll all obviously learn more as time goes on. Next question. Uh, let's see here. How easy is it to transition between industry sectors? So Blake, I was kind of getting at this one earlier, but what do you think? How easy is it to transition? Uh, it's, it depends. I, the Damn biggest it. thing that I I have here is anybody that's listened to the show you've heard me talk about this and harp on it before if you've worked with me ever in the past and have like questions about this kind of stuff i feel like networking can really help you here doing it early on and in the cases where you you're finding it difficult to transition between different sectors a big way to get after it is to kind of carve your carve your own way to figure out how do I get into another sector? How do I get experience there? So trying to make sure that you're networking early on, that you're volunteering for, you know, an HFES chapter, whether you're in school or you're like an adult in working life or same thing with UX stuff, getting really involved in the community can help you make those connections. And by making those connections, you can have a foot in the door somewhere, or maybe somebody can introduce you to somebody else. Um, but it can be difficult, not impossible though. I agree. I think knowing somebody in the sector that you want to go in is a huge um, benefit to you. The other way you can do it is just apply for jobs in that sector without really having the experience and tailoring your experience to that new sector. Um, obviously, if you're trying to break into a new thing, you will need to do your own research as to what are the most common tools, methodologies, those types of things employed. And so the more you can pull from your current experience, the higher likelihood is that you will be able to mesh with that new industry sector. Uh, if you have, if you're going from something completely different 
to something or if you're going from something to something completely different, it might be harder to paint that story without a connection bridging the two. And so, yes, it does come down to people that you know, but you can also frame your experience in a way that helps you try to break into that. Uh, so that's that's what I have for that one. Um, I'm going to skip this next one. We'll just go to the last one here. Are there any couples that are both Human Factors engineers? Blake? Yes. And we do completely different things, which is hilarious to me. But yeah, so we do both... Uh, Elise Hallett, who's one of the best human factors engineers I've ever met. Um, she does much more of like a traditional human factors role on top of being in a very high level leadership role. So think of it like a PM on steroids that can do a lot of awesome human factors work. Whereas I find myself in much of a much more of a design related role. Um, so we do contrastingly different things and have different interests both in the field and in life. Uh, but it is kind of interesting there. One thing I did want to jump in on, Nick, is something to consider if you are interested in surgical robotics in HF is checking out the human factors or the healthcare symposium footage you guys did. But there's also a lot of great companies like Intuitive who have awesome human factors practitioners on their staff that would be more than happy to talk to you about that kind of stuff. Um, so definitely look out for those companies. Yeah, I was going to with, leave with that plug there. Uh, Elise, who was on the show for the whole Human Factors Healthcare Symposium stuff, there's a lot of interesting content there that might be helpful if you're looking for that healthcare application uh, domain area. Blake, I'm going to skip this next one. We'll just get into it uh, next week. Um, but it's time for one more thing. Blake, Blake, what's your one more thing? Man, so one thing that's come up a bunch when I'm talking with students who are kind of tired of not having a targeted audience to pull from um, is how do I recruit participants for my usability tests? And this came from a newsletter out of from Design Lab. Full disclosure, it does. It comes from a company that I do work for, um, but it also comes. The article is really focused on a specific platform, uh, but I think there are some good takeaways from this article as well. Something that I have often found really hard to do is finding recruitment participants. Like, where do you start? What do you even do? And I think one kind of like some of the suggestions they have here is if you're working at a company that has like an established product, one really good thing to do is use your actual customer base. Because I know that sounds intuitive and simple, but a lot of times people will go outside of the customer base because they're worried about their experience or learning effects. Uh, but they have a lot of input that they can give you to, into a current product. Um, another place is to use something like a another platform, like a maze or like a usabilitytesting.com to just kind of outsource some of that problem area for you just to get your prototype out there or get your software idea out there so that you can get it tested. The last thing, and this is my favorite one, uh, go check out places like Slack or Discord or Reddit, like the user experience subreddit or the human factor subreddit that we use all the time. These are great places where you can do things like meet people, connect, test your, your ideas, but also, you know, maybe even find work. I found one of my first usability, my first user experience design job was through a Reddit post. Um, so going and using those communities effectively can really help you in this case, you know, find test participants for your software. Uh, but it can also be a great way to meet people. 
Okay, my one more thing. Um, it's it's incredible, Blake, that you've given uh, the community that resource because mine's just going to be BSing about taking a trip. So thank you, Blake. Uh, my, I love it. <laughs> my one more thing. I, I, we were talking about this before the show. How long has it been since you've taken a trip outside of California? Oh, man. I, so I think we figured it out. It has to be at least two years for yeah. me anyway. Yeah, it's about two years for myself as well because before my son was born, you know, I... I was around for a while and we didn't go to human factors uh, and ergonomic society 2019 because of that. Uh, and before that, my last trip was outside for work. And um, this is the first time because of COVID obviously that I've tried to plan a trip and man, I just got to like hand it to trip it. Um, it's a, it's a great tool where you can kind of plan your itinerary. Um, and obviously right now things are weird because um, we're kind of in that, Almost everything's okay, but not quite. And in fact, the place that we're going uh, has just kind of re-shut down a lot of things. And so it's like we have to plan oh, no. ar around where we're going and what's open and what kinds of activities we can do in that area. And so it's just a it's just been an amazing experience to kind of <laughs> get back into the the planning itinerary type of thing. Um, and looking for activities to do. But anyway, TripIt is a wonderful um, tool. If you haven't used it, I'll link it in the description below. Um, <laughs> but it is a, uh, it's basically, it, it links together everything and you can kind of see what your next step is for the trip. It, it's so cool. And and you just forward it emails and it automatically, like any lodging, any transportation, yep. you just forward it and it imports it all and does it all for you. It's great. So there's this, uh, inside joke between me and Elise. I hate TripIt. Oh, do you? And it and she she absolutely loves it. She uses it for everything. Her parents love it. It's great. And it is a gr it's a great software system and a great software solution. The reason that I hate it is something happened. I don't know when, but there's some some reason that I actually get Elise's trips in addition to mine. And I'll always <laughs> like have in my TripIt random stuff that I'm like, I'm not doing any of that. So it's just a funny kind of silly inside joke there. That's funny. Well, thank you for sharing that, Blake. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. What do you think about smart farms? I think that's a I'm totally mind blown over here. You can hang out with us on our Slack or Discord or get to us on any of our social channels. Let us know what you guys think. Uh, visit our official website. Sign up for our newsletter if you want to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. One, leave us a five-star review on whatever podcast medium you are listening to right now. Two, you can tell your friends about us. That helps the show grow. Or three, if you have the financial means and want to support us that way, you can consider supporting us on Patreon. Of course, we do give back to our patrons. Uh, and as always, links to all of our socials and website can be found in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnstorff for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about hacking into a UAV on a smart farm? If you want to talk about smart farms, you can always find me in the Human Factors class, Human Factors class, Human Factors cast Discord, and you can also find me all over social media at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch Tuesdays at eleven Pacific AM uh, for office hours or across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you.
spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. <laughs>